Welcome to Music Crush, a new music podcast hosted by Flute New Music Consortium. I'm Elizabeth Robinson. And I'm Nicole Reiner. And announcing FNMC Presents, an album of previous commissions and competition winners performed by members of the Flute New Music Consortium. Repertoire includes works by Sean O'Pevolo, Joseph Hallman, Becca Sims, Sharice Leiter, and others. Purchase a copy today. All proceeds go directly to FNMC. Flute New Music Consortium, Inc. is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Your contributions are tax deductible to the extent allowed by the law. Visit www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com for details. Jessica Rudman's music inspires empathy for social issues through stories of myth, magic, and the modern world. Described as a new music ninja by the Hartford Advocate, she blends lyrical melodies and dramatic narrative structures with sensual harmony and vibrant color to draw the audience into the world she's created. She believes that the ability to reach one's audience is of extreme importance in our current social, economic, and political climate. Highly involved in the new music community as a concert organizer and music educator, Rudman is a co-founder of Teaching Composition, a symposium on music composition pedagogy. She also volunteers with SCI and CMS, as well as the Women Composers Festival of Hartford, where she runs the student workshop. Jessica is currently an assistant professor of composition and theory at the University of Utah. Honors include winning the Riot Ensemble's Commissioning Competition, the Robert Starer Award, the Boston Metro Opera's Advocacy Award, the College Music Society Student Composer Award, the New Music at ECU Orchestra Composition Competition, and IAWM's Libby Larson Prize. She was a 2019 Connecticut Artist Fellow, and she has also been uh, a fellow in the American Opera Project's Composers and Voice Program from 2019 to 2021. Welcome to New Music Crush, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth and I met you not that long ago um, at the Music by Women Festival in March of 2023, um, which is at Mississippi University for Women, right? Um, and that's been that's a festival that's been going on for a little while. It seems like a lot of people go uh, pretty much every year. Have you been a regular at that festival or was that your first time? No, that um, that actually was my first time. Um, I had met uh, Julia Mortikova, who organizes the the festival um, a number of years ago um, at the Women Composers Festival in Hartford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but this is the first time uh that I went out to um to her festival in Mississippi small world it's always a small world isn't it um so how was the festival for you I mean it's interesting because you've been in in both positions you know attending and also helping to to run the one in Hartford how how was the experience for you in Mississippi it was great um you know it was uh somewhat of a of a adventure to get there yeah <laughs> yes but um <laughs> uh but it was fantastic you know there was um just a ton of really really wonderful music it was great to meet new performers and new composers um and the weather was gorgeous mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, and I got to sleep a full night without being awakened by a toddler. So that's also oh, good. <laughs> bonus, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, so I had a follow-up question for you, um, which I guess maybe, you know, that's that's one of the answers, but um, why, and this is really a selfish question for me too, because it's something I grapple with a lot. Uh, what do you get out of attending festivals? Like, how do you decide which ones to go to, how many to go to, what what, uh, what do you accomplish from attending them? Um, so as a composer, there's usually a, a few things um, that that I get out of going to these sorts of events. Um, one is that usually I have a piece performed. Um, mm. So that uh, <laughs> that sort of helps with the deciding which ones to go to <laughs> um, because it's it's a lot harder to justify the expense and the time to travel that far if I don't have a piece being performed. Um, as much as I would love to be able to go to all of the different conferences, um, I'm pretty sure that I would not be married anymore if I kept leaving my <laughs> daughter alone that much. <laughs> um, but uh, so that's one thing is, is as a composer getting to work with a performer um, that I haven't met before and have a piece performed. I find it really um, sort of reinvigorating to be out of daily life and to go for these sort of focused um, periods of time where you're really just thinking about music and enjoying the the artistry of other composers and performers and um, getting to have a sense of community with them. And so it's just sort of a, a, a really special way to like charge the batteries. Mm, yeah, that's a great perspective. One of the first things that Nicole and I both do when we're at festivals and we meet new composers like yourself is uh, look them up to see what they've written for flute. So <laughs> when we did that to you, we discovered Gaslight Variations and mm -hmm. I want to know everything. Go. Okay. <laughs> so um, Gaslight Variations um, came about because of a flutist that I was uh, friends with on Twitter posted asking for composers to write pieces for a, a project because she had a, a a new flute that was um, using the the Kingma microtonal fingering system, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and she had a glissando head joint, and so mm -hmm. she wanted pieces that used that setup. And so she was looking for composers who would um, would write pieces with the idea of eventually having performance and an album. I, I don't think those things came to fruition. Um, so the, the piece uh, has sort of sat in my drawer <laughs> for a long time. Um, so if anybody happens to have that setup and wants to... <laughs> <laughs> wants to see a copy and and uh you know workshop it with me um that would be great <laughs> you know it sounded like a really cool adventure to to um to try writing for this pretty unique instrument um so i i did a lot of research um i talked with the flutist um uh, quite a bit um 
she looked at some drafts um and uh and so now there is a a, a piece <laughs> that hopefully will will someday come to life um the the thing that interested me with writing for that setup was um sort of the potential for detuning mm -hmm. um musical materials over time um so musically what happens is in the piece is that you have um some initial material that's presented and then from using some of the microtonal fingerings and adjusting the position of the um head joint it gets detuned and it gets sort of um uh transformed and and made into a more grotesque version of itself very gradually um and so that that musical concept sort of seemed to fit very well to me with the idea of gaslighting <laughs> where it starts off and your thought process gets transformed so that it's not matching reality um so that's where the the title comes from oh, that sounds so interesting i don't have either of those things a glissando head joint <laughs> or a kingma system flute. Um, do you, and not being a flutist, I don't blame you if you don't have an answer to this, but I, whenever I hear about a really cool piece that's not getting performed, I want to help. <laughs> um, do you think that it it would work if, if a person only had the, um, the glissando head joint since there's so much freedom to move? Um, it might, it might be able to be adapted for that. Um, mm. I would have to look a little bit more closely at it and, and talk with somebody who is more, uh, well-versed in what's possible with the glissando head joint. There may be ways to adapt it, mm. um, mm -hmm. for that. All right. So glissando head joint owners, if you're listening, <laughs> I think that's happening at a more rapid rate than the Kingma system flutes, you know? Mm -hmm. so you you can see why I haven't uh <laughs> haven't been able to find anybody else yeah. to yeah, um to, to do anything with it sounds fascinating though it does yeah that's I'm sad I don't have that set up yeah you have you have several other works with equally evocative themes or titles um you've got Mary Curie learns to swim trigger a curious incident with the queen uh, that sound like they're dealing with themes of social injustice or, you know, the ills of our unequal society. Um, is this a, is this a conscious, do, do whatever you want with this question, honestly, but is this a conscious <laughs> choice that you have, have decided at some point in your career to, to really stake your claim in this way and adopt um, this kind of persona as a composer? Is it something that just kind of occurred naturally to you? um or something in between um so I, I i guess sort of something in between um i i sort of remember pretty vividly um a time when i was in graduate school and one of the uh composition faculty members when i was at heart um david mcbride he presented in our composition seminar and he was somebody who was very big into writing pieces that um 
had to do with what was going on in the world. Um, and I, I remember when he was presenting, sort of thinking like, why would I want to do that? I just want to write music <laughs> and, and not like respecting what he was doing, but not seeing it as a, as, as the path for myself. Hmm. Um, but then I sort of realized that everything I was doing was really personal. Um, and as I got more sort of focused on, um, sort of bigger issues outside of myself in in the world, it just seemed really natural that those sorts of subjects would make their way into my music because they were things that I was thinking about a lot um, otherwise. And um, with, with Trigger, I sort of came into that again in sort of a backwards kind of way it's a it's about domestic violence it's based on a an actual event that happened in Nova Scotia in I think 2014 and after I wrote that piece it it just kind of kept going from there with focusing on different um you know different topics that are are challenging to 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 deal with and challenging to think of what we can do that actually will be meaningful to help make the situations better um and I, I don't have any answers but but it's sort of me working through my own my own emotions and my own thought process about my my place as a, a member of society when all of these <laughs> things are are happening um that uh I, I don't think any of us really want to be happening <laughs> Right. Yeah, it, it has felt like whiplash the last five or six years, too, just in terms mm -hmm. of the, the scale and number of issues, for, for lack of a better term, that, that have presented themselves. Yeah. I remember um, one morning over breakfast um, at the festival, at the, at the Music by Women Festival, a few of us were sitting and talking about kind of meaning in music. And, and I think you were the one who, who had said that you you had gotten the advice also to, to make sure that titles were meaningful, you know, to not, or, and, and kind of matched the, the meaning of the music rather than Sonata number three or something like that too. Yeah. I, I think somebody else might've been the one that said that, but I agree oh. with it. Yeah. I don't, I don't specifically remember getting that advice, but it is, it is very good advice. Yeah. I mean, for me, from a performer's perspective too, uh, I want to do things that are meaningful um, but I don't write my own music. And so, you know, these are, I mean, the, these, these pieces in the catalog are a real gift to so many of us who, who want to do more than just another academic recital, you know, to, to kind of go through the motions because we're supposed to do one every year for our students or something, but to really, to really find things that you can say that are meaningful on stage to, to your audience. It's, I think more and more of us are are very appreciative for that and really looking for that. Um, flute players love thinking of ourselves as singers. Have you noticed this, Elizabeth? This there's this long history of of us, you know, talking about how similar flute and voice are. Um, and I don't know how much that that comes off to the outside world, but I, I do notice as a flute player that that you've written a lot for voice, including multiple operas. And so I was wondering if 
as a non-flutist, if you see connections between flute and voice, either when you're writing for flute or just as a listener, and and if so, what does that mean to you as a composer? Um, yeah, I definitely see connections between flute and voice. I mean, the the use of breath and and phrasing um, and uh, and the potential for expressivity. Um, I see a lot of a lot of similarities in terms of um, what you can do with them. I mean, obviously, with voice, there's a lot more of an emphasis on text than there sure, is sure. in most flute music. But I think aside from that, I think there is a really strong connection. Um, I have a one of the pieces that uh, that I've written for voice is a, a large song cycle for mezzo soprano and either a small chamber orchestra or a large chamber ensemble, depending on what you want to call it. And uh, it, it's on my mind because we're going to be recording it in June. And so I've been revising all the parts. <laughs> but there's a lot of interplay between the voice and the flute and, and also the uh, other wind instruments. Flute in particular in the first movement sort of um, foreshadows and responds to what's happening with the voice um, like, like sort of a, a another character almost. Oh, cool. So what is this piece that, that you're about to record so we can go find it too? So it's called uh, Assault Speaks. Um, it's based on the um, Tristan and Isolde myth and it's it's based on a set of poems by a poet named Elizabeth Hamilton um, and she wrote these really, really gorgeous texts that are um, from Salt's point of view and um, sort of looking at the myth, but from a, a, a place of more omniscience. So there's some historical references that obviously would not be appropriate for the myth if you were if you were being strict about it. And she has a little more knowledge of the situation than a character would in the midst of the story. But it's really sort of focusing on um, on personal agency um, and on uh, gender roles and how the events affect her and Tristan differently. Mm. Um, and uh, it's just, yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful set of texts. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm really thrilled to be working with the singer and the ensemble and that sounds amazing i'll put it i'll add this to the show notes so people can we can all go look for the poems as well are you just constantly on the prowl are you constantly reading things for for more text material for compositions mm -hmm. yeah um i'm not i'm not always um doing it actively it usually happens very passively because i have um the American Academy of Poets has like a, a poem of the day, for example, where they, you know, will will send it out by email and post it on uh, their social media. Um, so I follow that and I, I have other sorts of um, things set up like that where I'm just sort of being exposed to, to different poetry a lot. And so I just sort of put it into a, a folder <laughs> when I see something cool. that I that I want to work with eventually. And so if I have a project and I need to look for a text, then I'll have a, a, a repository of things to go back through. Sometimes I have uh, an idea and then we'll talk to somebody, one of the writers that I work with, uh, usually Kendra Preston Leonard, and she might write something new. She did that for a, a, a choral piece that I wrote a few years ago um, 
called A Forest That is a Desert. And then she's really going to be writing a, a new text for a potential voice and flute piece. Oh, cool. Well, keep us posted about that. That's a hot tip. I'm going to I'm going to go see if I can get some poems sent to me. That sounds amazing. Um you uh, we previously mentioned, I guess we we've previously previously mentioned that you also have quite a lot of experience as a concert organizer. What have you learned about the process from that end, from that role, and then how does that ex- affect your experiences when you participate or spectate at other people's events? <laughs> well, I I have to like calm my inner a uh, backseat driver. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I do also, I, I think, have a special appreciation when things go smoothly <laughs> at mm-hmm. events. I mean, I like, I like to think it makes me a little easier to work with because I have an idea of what goes in, goes into putting together a, a concert or a festival or a conference or things like that. I can be more understanding and more helpful and try not to <laughs> do do things that will drive the organizers crazy. It it also gave me sort of a, a appreciation for programming and for thinking about how pieces go together um, sure. in terms of, of subject matter, in terms of theme, and also in terms of sort of the overall arc of the experience of listening to all of the pieces on a concert. And so sometimes as a composer, it's worth thinking about, you know, am I, do I want this to be a piece that would be a good opener or a good closer? Or mm. is that not, does that not really matter? And and also practical considerations of, well, if I write a 40 minute piece, it's going to be really hard to program right. <laughs> unless you can excerpt it. So, so some of those sorts of practical considerations um, make their way more into my artistic choices or artistic thinking when I'm when I'm composing or planning pieces. Do you think you got a lot of advice from your mentors about sort of practical considerations when composing, or has that been learned through the school of hard knocks? Um, I think some of both. I definitely. Um, had a teacher who was very um, sort of practical about notation and making sure. sure that your intentions are really clear and making sure everything looks professional and, and so that you minimize any possible questions and, and don't, you know, make it so that players or ensembles waste rehearsal time trying to figure out what it is that you mean, you know, things like that, or like, okay, well, if you're going to use, you know, a second harp in the orchestra, nobody's going to want to program it because they're not going to want to pay a second harvest. Right. So yeah, I think I did get practical advice when it came up in the course of lessons or or classes, you know, but you can't cover everything. And so there's always going to be things that you learn through experience. I I live in a, in South Dakota. So it's, it's a more um, sparsely populated area. And so I, I find that I live 
more deeply entrenched in the practical than a lot of composers that I interact with who, you know, maybe live in a major metropolitan area on a coast. Mm. And I'm always interested, like, as a person who is doing the creating rather than the programming, how do you balance sort of, these are the things I want with like, these are the things that exist in the world where I live. How do you balance Mm -hmm. the practical and the creative? Well, I'm almost always writing for specific people in specific projects that probably helps so from from sort of like the get-go there's usually a pretty clearly defined set of what's possible and what's okay and what's not for this project (laughs) I think that that helps I'm also pretty pragmatic um where I want people to hear my music I want it to get performed so if I have a piece that's that's for a less common instrumentation then I may make a version of it that's for a more common instrumentation there's very few things where I'm not willing to adapt it um and that's only if adapting it would take away like the fundamental nature of the piece sure I'm not really from the school of this is my vision. Everybody else must figure out how to make it happen. I I feel like, like, okay, I have this intention. And how can we work together to make sure that we are realizing it in the best possible way? I guess I feel more collaborative rather than like being in charge. <laughs> It sounds pretty rooted in the pragmatic too, if you're largely working with specific performers for specific performances. Also, I can't imagine writing, you know, some very obscure instrument combination for no one and no promise of it getting played. I mean, that just seems like a real waste of your time and energy, most likely. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there were some things that I wrote as a student that were sort of weird instrumental combinations because they had an ensemble that they right. did that yeah but uh, unless somebody is is commissioning me to do something like that um I don't generally have like this burning need that I have to create a piece <laughs> for um I don't know what would be like really obscure like didgeridoo and <laughs> um electric guitar and I don't know what else <laughs> English horn um English horn. (laughs) The ideas that I have for pieces are usually more general and more abstract than that. A concept can be realized in different ways. It's not tied to necessarily certain concrete things most of the time. Jessica, you you've also taught for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So you've you've taught everything from pre pre college through graduate level. Um, you can take this question uh, for whatever group of students you wish, but I'm wondering what you most hope to accomplish with your students right now, currently, and and if your pedagogical philosophy has changed over time from your experiences or, or from the way the world is. Yeah, I would definitely say that my approach to, to teaching has changed over time. In, in sort of the early years when I was teaching composition, I was I was pretty focused on theory 
I've moved away from that. Um, I mean, I, I still love theory and I still teach theory um, and I still incorporate it into my composition teaching, but I, I do it in a different way now where it's coming from um, creative motivations. So the students are trying to do X. So what tools can I introduce that will help them to oh, do sure. what they're trying to do as opposed to, well, let me teach you why and you go play around with it. I mean, it depends on the, on the class too. Some, you know, in group classes versus lessons, lessons are much more based on the students' individual projects and goals. Um, whereas the different group classes, they have a different, subjects, they have different things that you are supposed to, to teach. I'm going to introduce you to this and here's some ways you can use it. Um, but I'm really, I really focus on trying to get my students to think about their intentions and what they want to um, accomplish in a piece, um, whether it's to express something um, or whether it's to try certain musical things, but I really, I really try to get them to think deeply about what it is they want their music to do, and then how can they achieve that? I think that's great advice for those of us teaching teaching in performance studios too. I don't know that as a student I ever got asked my opinion. <laughs> of what I wanted to do or, or, you know, what, what I was trying to accomplish on flute or what I wanted to play. It was just, all right, here's where you are now. Here's what we're going to do to fix you some more. Um, and I don't think that's very compelling to students anymore. And that that's reasonable. You know, if, if students are coming in with things that really inspire them, that, that does seem like a smarter way to, to, you know, create a core to your philosophy. Well, and it's so interesting for performers because your interpretation and what you bring to a piece is what differentiates you from other other musicians. It's it's pretty far along before you 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 get to think about that. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, before it's worked into your your learning process. Speaking of inspiration, our last question that we love to ask everybody is uh, what are three pieces you're listening to now? Um, I have been listening to a lot of Cocoa Melon. <laughs> um, <laughs> again, Say more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, for anyone who does not have kids um, or does not regularly spend time around young children, Cocoa Melon is these cartoons that it, they do like different kids songs awesome um and they're very addictive for kids <laughs> and um and my daughter is obsessed with them so I'm listening to a lot of that right now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, to be honest, I've been listening to a lot of that. And I've been listening to a lot of my students' pieces because we're at the oh. end of this semester. And so we've had a lot of end of semester concerts and portfolio reviews, <laughs> all of those right. things. 
Um, so I haven't actually been having a lot of um, pleasure listening <laughs> time. So I don't know if you want me to just, to maybe say some pieces that I like or something. Well, if it sounds like you've shared a, a pretty accurate picture of where you are right now. Um, do you have true. a couple of things you would like to be listening to when school settles down? So I'm I'm looking ahead to that sort of potential flute and voice piece. And so I'd like to to sort of do a deep dive into pieces for that combination. Um, I know Kate Soper has a really wonderful piece. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm just curious to see what else is out there. Um, is your voice soprano? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's a Roussel I did like a million years ago that was really beautiful. Well, that's fun. So, so a little bit of flute and soprano research. You got anything else that's kind of on your, your, um, musical diet wish list? Well, uh, <laughs> no, um, Actually, I would like to to get to know um, the music of Rhiannon Gidden. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. More. I've been seeing that name a lot. Yeah, because um, she just won the Pulitzer. Well, um, we usually that's usually our last question, but can I ask another one? Um, so you <laughs> sure. have you're you're working on recording right now, which is very exciting. Um, do you have any other big performances of your works or, or recordings that you know are in the hopper for the next year or so that we should keep our eyes peeled for? Um, well, the I mean, the recording project that I'm doing um, in June, there is a, a performance associated with it. Um, I'm, I'm working with the Hartford Independent Chamber Orchestra, and they're going to be performing um, Assault Speaks, which is a it's a really big piece. It's um, like 40 minutes long, um, along with a um, clarinet concerto. Oh, um, nice. So that's sort of the next <laughs> big, big thing on the horizon. Um, and uh, hopefully those those recordings will eventually be released on an album, but we're in the early stages and don't have a label or anything like that yet. Sure. Other, other big things, there's a few um, in sort of early planning stages where we're waiting to hear about grant funding. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, I'm supposed to hear back about one of the grants tomorrow. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, but hope hopefully at some point in the proximate future, we'll be workshopping more of, um, of my in-progress opera Protectress, um, which is text by Kendra Preston Leonard, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and uh, just and more collaborations. Nice. Life sounds very exciting for you. I look forward to continuing to follow you online and, and listen to these things as they come out. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Well, thanks, Jessica, for joining us. It was really great getting to know you a little bit. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. And happy summer break. Yay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for another episode of Music Crush. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also support the podcast, read show notes, and learn more about FNMC by visiting www.flutenewmusicconsortium.com.